Hello and welcome to the BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of Dorset rural life in the month of May, presented by Jenny Devitt and Terry Bennett. This is episode two for May 2022. A clear start for Taran and possibly the best FedEx parcel delivery ever by three-day eventer Toots Bartlett. April has been a very exciting month here at Toots Bartlett Eventing, with lots of eventing and a few new members joining the team. The lovely Ecstasy SRZ, Gatsby, has been out twice this season, returning from a year off. He started with a 24 dressage and clear show jumping, but withdrew cross-country as it was only unaffiliated and we felt he wouldn't have gained any education from the course. He then went on to do a lovely double clear at Portman BE100 with a few time penalties cross-country for a finishing place of ninth. He will now step back up to BE novice level. Portman also marked the first event for my fantastic groom Joel Hart and his horse, the Raglad, also competing in the BE100 section, just adding four faults from the show jumping to his dressage score of 34. My very exciting young horse, Cor E. Taran, I introduced him last month, he's the horse I bought unseen off Facebook, had his eventing debut with me. Throwing him into the deep end at one unaffiliated 100 at Aston Le Walls, and then a BE 100 at Bicton. He passed all my expectations with double clear at both. I am feeling just a little pleased for myself to have found this special boy. Freestyle R was the last horse to have been out competing in April. He had two great runs at intermediate level and is feeling absolutely amazing. We took our first advanced as a combination on the 1st of May, before turning our attention to Houghton for the CCI3L. Finally, whilst pretty much every weekend has been full eventing throughout April, we have also had the arrival of two very special horses. My four-star horse, CY, came back to me from Ivy Lodge Rehab Centre in Gloucestershire, where they have done a fabulous job and have given him the chance to return to his former glory. It's fantastic to have him home, and I'm excited about bringing him back to fitness. On April the 21st, a very special FedEx parcel arrived from the other side of the world. Back in March, whilst on the search for a new horse, we found an incredible black beauty that my family and I fell in love with. The only small problem, that he was in New Zealand. We had no opportunity to be able to go and try him because of COVID restrictions. So there were long conversations with my trainers and a lot of research before we decided to take an enormous risk and a deal was done. A long wait till the earliest plane from New Zealand to England and a 38-hour plane journey for him. But Ecuador has finally arrived safely. I have had many sleepless nights wondering if we made the right decision but he is here, safe, sound and more beautiful than I can ever have imagined. I can't wait to start getting to know him and I'm so grateful, appreciative and still a little bit in shock to have been given this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Apparently it will take him six months to adjust to our British weather. My heart goes out to Ecuador on that one. So I will thoroughly enjoy sharing our journey with you. It has also been a very special month watching all the preparation for William Fox Pitt's two horses getting ready for badminton. It has been wonderfully insightful and has made me even more determined to follow his footsteps. He is a legend and what a privileged young rider I am to have access to all his expertise and knowledge. 
Anyway, such an exciting month. Time to take a breath, catch up on a tiny bit more sleep and get ready to go and attack May. Three-day eventing 101. Eventing is best described as an equestrian triathlon. Each horse and rider pair must complete three tests, dressage, cross-country and show jumping. The horse and rider pair with the fewest penalty points after all three tests is the winner. The tests developed from training horses used in military combat. War horses were required to be fit, agile, obedient and brave. As their usefulness in combat diminished, these highly trained horses became repurposed for competitions between nations during peaceful times, which became known as horse trials and the sport known as eventing. Horse trials have varying degrees of difficulty, ranging from beginner novice through to advanced in nationally recognized events and CCI1 star through to CCI1 five star in internationally recognized competitions. Dressage is the first phase of a horse trial, a series of suppling and strengthening exercises performed in a flat enclosed arena. Show jumping. The second phase in eventing, agility and precision at speed, are the critical requirements of stadium jumping. A clear round means no penalties. Cross-country, the final phase tests the speed, endurance, boldness and jumping ability of the horse over varied terrain and solid obstacles, large fences, water, banks, ditches and drops. Cross-country is ridden at a gallop with speed requirements dependent upon the level of difficulty of the division. Local History Tales from the Vale with Andy Palmer It is September 1939 and a young girl, around 12 years old, is hushed while the family gathers in the kitchen. There's an important announcement on the wireless. The Prime Minister is announcing to the nation, we are at war with Germany. I'll break in at this sombre moment to recall the memory of Spike Milligan, a teenager later called up to fight. He was in his London home at exactly the same time as our young Blackmore Vale girl. His family also hushed around the wireless as Chamberlain made his announcement, We are at war. Spike's dad indignantly said of the deluded, failed Premier, I like the we. And how life changed for the little girl. The families were issued with gas masks, ID cards and ration books. The gas masks had to be carried at all times. What a coming of age for the poor children. Now too old for Mapaldo's infant school, our young girl and others were bussed to Buckland Newton Primary, a rather bare three-roomed building. The children were told to bring a hessian sack into school the next day, where the girls slit the edges so they resembled small blankets. The hessian squares, one for each child, were dyed green, and they were told to listen for the whistles. One feep of the whistle meant the children had to put on the gas mask. Two shrill calls on the whistle instructed the children to lie down flat on the ground and cover themselves with their green hessian blanket in order to minimise being machine-gunned by passing German planes. Three whistle calls meant run to the trenches, which were at the top of the school garden and under a hedge. And there they had to stay, presumably alternating between being scared rigid and giggling until they heard the all clear. You may think it a bit far-fetched, the thought of highly intelligent German pilots from an allegedly super-cultured nation that gave us Schiller, Goethe, Beethoven, modern psychiatry et al., machine-gunning English civilians, including women and children. Not at all. It is well documented. 
I used to play chess in East Sussex with some elderly gentlemen, and yes, they always won, but they did checkmate me with a charming air of regret. They all remembered their boyhood in Kent, spent excitedly watching the German formations drone over and running for cover when a low-level fighter came over searching for a bit of fun. Indeed, secretly recorded conversations from captured pilots in British-run prisoners of war camps caught some pilots boasting about the fun of such heroic war work and of their prowess. Obviously, such a thing couldn't happen in Europe today. Oh, hang on. I've mentioned before that one of my first jobs was to establish and run an education department in a military museum, Fort Newhaven in East Sussex. The job was easy as we had no end of our original artefacts to display and for school-aged children to handle. But it was all pretty much geared for boys and I wanted it to be attractive to girls. So not only did we display authentic uniforms for women called up, the Wren's uniforms were most admired, I thought it interesting if children could appreciate the weekly food allowance which, I'll admit, rather astounded me. Rationing was introduced on January the 8th, 1940 and a typical person's weekly ration the amounts fluctuated throughout the conflict, roughly allowed per person one egg, two ounces of tea, two ounces of butter, one ounce of cheese, eight ounces of sugar, four ounces of bacon, four ounces of margarine. Just a quick note, 50 modern tea bags weighs 4.8 ounces. They're reused tea bags. A modern pack of butter is 9 ounces. Two tablespoons of sugar is 1.7 ounces. No wonder people sweeten cake mixture with root vegetables, mainly carrots. It may be interesting to children to weigh out two ounces of butter and see how much they get to last a week. As for bananas, oranges, lemons and other imported fruits and nuts, forget it. In 1946, my mum, aged 16, was given an orange and she'd forgotten what they were. When told it was to eat, she took a bite and grimaced. She didn't know you had to peel it. The last time she'd seen an orange, she was nine. So at the museum, I got the art department to knock up a display of a typical week's food allowance. Our female visitors were astonished, but the boys were even more horrified. A national loaf. No, this wasn't a massive countrywide lie-in. Rationing made people inventive. We had an example during the 70th VE Day anniversary in the village hall in Mapowder. The villagers went to great efforts to reproduce authentic wartime festive meals. By and large, it was all inedible, including the national loaf, which my wife researched and baked. The national loaf was a government-inspired horror which urged bakers not to use wasteful white purified flour, but the grain husks too. I'm all for wholemeal and roughage, but there are limits, as the government must have thought as they tried to sell the concept with the ditty, pat a loaf, pat a loaf, baker's man, bake me a loaf as fast as you can. It builds up my health and its taste is good. I find that I like eating just what I should. I think it's fairly clear that the author of the propaganda ministry either hadn't tried the national loaf or had one hell of an imagination. Not sure if the ditty worked, but that didn't matter. There was little other choice for most people. And there was the notorious Woolton Pie, named after the food ministry boss. Of this monstrosity, I can only say that if you tried a modern homity pie in what seems to be the regulation bulletproof pastry from a particularly austere vegetarian cafe, then that would be a sumptuous meal by comparison. Bit more about my mum, 
which I have gently touched on in an earlier article. Mum, based in southwest London, rather liked the war and thoroughly enjoyed the air raids in 1940. Even now, I wonder at the morality of odd adult males thinking it okay to kill a ten-year-old girl and her mum. Mum had little thought for that. It was so cosy in the shelter, Dad made up beds, we had hot milk in the thermos, and I was allowed to read by candlelight. Typical of my mum, it's just me, me, me. And did rationing end right after the war in 1945? No, my mum was nine when rationing started, and she was a 24-year-old qualified teacher when it ended on July the 4th, 1954. The Battle of Hambledon Hill by Rupert Hardy of North Dorset CPRE. People often forget how severely Dorset was impacted by the Civil War, which started in earnest in 1642. The county lay between the Royalist strongholds in the West Country and those of the Roundheads in Southeast. Dorset was very divided, with Sherborne and Blandford Royalist, while Dorchester and Lyme Regis were strong supporters of Parliament. There were repeated clashes and sieges, such as at Corfe Castle, where the brave Lady Banks held out for years. However, the largest pitch battle was at Hambledon Hill in 1645, and it was fought between an army of roundheads and a motley band of local farmers called clubmen, driven to defend their land and homes from the ravages of both roundhead and cavalier soldiers. Indiscriminate plundering and looting by these troops in Dorset and other counties had gone on for several years, badly affecting rural communities, especially in the Vale. Soldiers were, for the most part, ill-paid and poorly disciplined, living off the land, although the formation of the new model army in 1645 improved things to some degree. In exasperation, farmers formed local militias to defend themselves and their families. They were known as clubmen, due to the rudimentary nature of their arms, including clubs and pitchforks. They were often led by the local clergy, as well as gentry, while their uniform was no more than a white ribbon on their hats as a sign that they were a neutral third party. They did carry banners, saying, If you offer to plunder or take our cattle, be assured we will bid you battle. The first notable sign of them in Dorset was in February 1645, when a thousand gathered at Godmanston outside Dorchester and killed a few royalist soldiers. By May, clubmen were organising themselves throughout the west of England, and 4,000 gathered on Clubman's Down near Fontmel Down to create articles of covenant and organise groups of watchmen to guard against the soldiers who stole and plundered. In June, a similar large gathering took place at Badbury Rings, calling for an end to this civil and unnatural war within the kingdom. The next month, a deputation of clerics and gentry presented Parliamentarian General Sir Thomas Fairfax with a petition in Dorchester, which prompted him to promise them good discipline. However, in August, Fairfax started to besiege Sherborne Castle but found his supply lines threatened by clubmen. He therefore sent troops, commanded by no lesser figure than Oliver Cromwell, to Shaftesbury to arrest their leaders as they presented a real threat to his parliamentary forces. Cromwell did this, but then nearly faced a battle with clubmen at nearby Duncliffe Hill. However, he managed to pacify them after an arduous climb to the top of the hill to meet their leaders, including Richard Newman of Fifehead Magdalen. A few days later, the clubmen had regrouped on Hambledon Hill, 
They numbered three to four thousand and were led by Newman and the Reverend Thomas Bravel of Compton Abbas. They were determined to make a stand against the Roundhead Dragoons, while Cromwell thought it was time to put an end to the threat they posed to his supply lines. He attempted to negotiate, but was met with a hail of bullets, which killed two of his men. The clubmen had dug trenches and used the existing Iron Age banks and ditches. They were expecting a frontal attack, but Cromwell outwitted them by sending 50 dragoons to charge their rear as he attacked the front. The clubmen took one look at the dragoons bearing down on them and most fled down the hill in panic with up to 60 killed. 300 were locked up overnight at Schroten, including four malignant priests. Cromwell gave them a lecture and then dismissed them, calling them poor silly creatures. A roundhead helmet hung from the church there until quite recently as a reminder. The clubmen might have had greater success had they been more united. Part of this was related to the army of occupation they feared more. Langport clubmen only experienced the ravages of royalists, so they actually helped the Roundhead army in 1645, while those in Dorset and Wiltshire feared both armies. There were more clubmen risings later in the year, but the Battle of Hambledon Hill was the last time they presented a real threat to either army. It would be wrong to underestimate them, though. The failure of either the King or Parliament to agree a peace treaty only served to increase tension as plundering continued and gave further motivation to the clubmen. After Hambledon, these were demonstrated largely through physical demonstrations and print culture, particularly in pamphlets. Joshua Sprigg, who was chaplain to General Fairfax, summed it up well. If the clubman rising had not been crushed in the egg, it had on an instant run all over the kingdom. Some historians have sought to attribute revolutionary tendencies to them, but this is simply not true. They mostly wanted a return to the status quo before the war, but they are remembered as early instigators of rebellion by the common man, and their example of community self-defence was inspirational. If you're keen to learn more, the book Clubman 1645, Neutralism in a Revolution by local author Hayden Wheeler is available online. The Wild History of Shroton's Village Pub by Roger Guttridge The Cricketers Pub in Shroton, as it stands today, was built just a century ago after the thatched White Hart that stood on the same site was burnt down. The fire was in 1920, but the White Hart name survived until the 1990s, when it was changed to celebrate the pub's long association with Shroton Cricket Club, founded in 1857. The pub's deepest origins are lost in the mists of time. Village historian Judith Hewitt told Roger that the earliest record of a pub in Shroton dates from before 1715, when Vittler Edward New paid £10 for his liquor licence. It's not clear where Mr New's premises were. In 1759, Vizzler John Goddard kept a pub at The Sign of a Bush. The bush was renamed the White Hart the following year. Goddard's name appears again in 1807, when the White Hart hosted a major auction of timber comprising 100 prime maiden oaks with lops and bark, and 21 ashes, all standing at Schroden Farm. The White Hart also hosted cockfighting in 1799, with the Salisbury and Winchester Journal advertising a main of cocks to be fought, 15 on each side. 
The prizes were 10 guineas a battle and 50 guineas the odd battle. On Boxing Day 1889, a pigeon shooting competition was held at the White Hart with a sweepstake for valuable prizes. Tickets cost five shillings and conveyances were organised to meet trains at Shillingston Station with a fare of one shilling. For much of the 19th century, the pub was associated with the Andrews family and Schroten Brewery, who rented it from the Pitt Rivers estate. In 1918, the estate, anticipating death duties, offered the pub for sale, and it was bought by Blandford Brewers Hall and Woodhouse for £750. The sale was held at the Swan in Sturmitzer Newton, and the catalogue describes the buildings as brick-built with a thatched roof and fronted by a small lawn and open green beyond, extending to the main highway. The green is now the car park. Facilities in 1918 included a bar, smoking room, tap room, large living room, large cellars, three bedrooms, lobby, attic bedroom, long club room and a long room that doubled as a skittle alley and trap house. The outbuildings included a two-room former brew house and a four-stall stable. The landlord at the time was Joseph Crewe, who paid an annual rent of £45, During the 19th century, the club room and long room hosted coroner's inquests, the cricket club AGM, political meetings and Christmas dinners for village organisations. An offer of marriage among a pile of amputated limbs by Roger Guttridge. When Benjamin Harris of Stalbridge exchanged the gentle pace of life as a shepherd boy for military service, he had no idea what he was letting himself in for. After tending sheep since infancy, the 22-year-old met an army recruiting team in Blandford in 1803 and was seduced into taking the king's shilling. Army records reveal that Harris was paid £11, approximately £900 today, for signing up, which must have seemed a fortune to someone whose weekly wage would have been just a few shillings. He spent the next 11 years as a private, mostly in the 95th Rifles, surviving battles and other tribulations that claimed the lives of many comrades. Although illiterate, Harris later dictated a vivid account of the Peninsular War, which was first published in 1848 and reprinted in 1995, with notes and additions by Dorset writer Eileen Hathaway. Benjamin, son of shepherd Robert Harris and his wife Elizabeth, was a sheep boy from an early age. As soon almost as I could run, I began helping to look after the sheep on the downs of Blandford in Dorsetshire where I was born, he says, tending the flocks and herds under my charge and occasionally, in the long winter nights, learning the art of making shoes, I grew into a hardy little chap. His hardiness would come in handy in later years. One fine day in 1803, he says, I was drawn as a soldier for the Army of Reserve, Without troubling myself much about the change which was to take place in the hitherto quiet routine of my days, I was drafted into the 66th Regiment of Foot and bid goodbye to my shepherd companions. Benjamin's decision meant leaving his ageing father without an assistant to collect his flocks, just as he was beginning more than ever to require one. A shocked Robert Harris did his best to remedy his son's impulsiveness. He tried to buy me off and to persuade the sergeant that I was of no use as a soldier, having maimed my right hand by breaking a forefinger when I was a child, says Benjamin. 
But the sergeant said I was just the sort of little chap he wanted, and off he went, carrying me and a bunch of other recruits away with him. One of Benjamin's first military experiences was to witness the execution of a soldier who'd joined up sixteen times to claim the bounty and deserted every time. In 1808, Harris was involved in the first skirmishes of the Peninsula campaign against Napoleon in Portugal. I often look back with wonder at the light-hearted style, the jollity and reckless indifference with which men, destined in so short a time to fall, hurried onwards to the field of strife, he says. Among those whose deaths he witnessed was Joseph Cocaine, shot in the head while swigging water. In those days, many women followed their men to the battlefields. After the battle, when the roll was called, some of the females came along the line to inquire of the survivors whether they knew anything about their husbands, Harris recalled. Mrs. Cocaine refused to believe Joseph was dead and insisted on being taken to the spot. I made my way over the ground we'd fought on. She followed, sobbing, says Harris, in a particularly moving section. When they reached her husband's body, Mrs. Cocaine embraced a stiffened corpse, then rose and contemplated his disfigured face for some minutes. She took a prayer book from her pocket, and with hands clasped and tears streaming down her cheeks, she knelt down and repeated the service for the dead over the body. Harris later offered to marry the handsome woman, but she said she'd never think of marrying another soldier. Some horrors described by Harris almost too awful to contemplate. After the Battle of Vimero, a churchyard became an open-air hospital where surgeons, their hands and arms covered in blood, looked like butchers in the shambles. As I passed, I saw at least twenty legs lying on the ground, many clothed in the long black gaiters, then worn by the infantry of the line, Harris adds. During a winter retreat to Corona and Vigo, a heavily pregnant Irishwoman and husband fell by the wayside in the snow and were not expected to be seen again. But a little later, the couple were hurrying to catch up, complete with their newborn baby. Between them, they carried the baby to the end of the retreat and sailed for England. Helping our farmland birds to return and thrive from Dorset Wildlife Trust. From chattering flocks of linnets, buntings and finches, yellowhammers singing from thick bushy hedges and skylarks hovering above fields, farmland has traditionally provided key habitats for some of our most beautiful and melodic native farmland birds. However, changes in farming practices have led to the loss of many such habitats. According to the bird indicators produced jointly by the British Trust for Ornithology and the RSPB for DEFRA, breeding farmland birds declined by more than half between 1970 and 2019. Dorset Wildlife Trust works with landowners across the county to provide guidance and advice on managing their land with wildlife in mind. From unplanted patches for skylarks to nest, to designating grassy margins for ground nesting birds such as corn bunting, birds can be encouraged to return and thrive. Making space for nature, and in particular these traditional birds, has never been more important. So what to look out for in Dorset? Yellowhammers. The yellowhammer is a sparrow-sized bright yellow bird that feeds on seeds and invertebrates. They are often seen perched on top of bushes singing their A Little Bit of Bread and No Cheese song, 
Whilst the numbers of this bright yellow bird have declined in recent years, surveys have identified Yellowhammer at our recently acquired Wild Woodbury Rewilding Project at Beer Regis. By changing the way the land is managed, we hope to build the numbers of this redlist species. The Skylark The Song of the Skylark has been the subject of many great musical and literary works. They are easy to spot, rising almost vertically from farmland and grasslands, singing and hovering effortlessly at a great height before parachuting back down to earth. Despite their aerial activities, skylarks nest on the ground, laying three to four eggs. Fontmel Down is a great place to spot the skylark, a streaky brown bird with a crest. The corn bunting. A streaky brown, thick-billed bird, which is similar to the skylark, but with a thicker bill and no crest. Male corn buntings are often seen perched on top of bushes singing loudly, a song that sounds just like a jangling set of keys. The corn bunting often joins mixed flocks of buntings, finches and sparrows, feeding on seeds on farmland in the winter. What's happening in the blue tit nest box by Jane Adams? In March, as I battled with six-foot bamboo canes in the overgrown veg patch, two blue tits scolded me from a nearby beech tree. It happens every year. They've chosen a nest box nailed to the side of the potting shed, and as they flit back and forth, they think I'm a bit too close for comfort. I've named them Bonnie and Clyde, and they look glamorous in their yellow and blue feathered coats. They're living life on the edge. Their eggs must hatch at the same time as the caterpillars they catch to feed their chicks. It's all down to timing. In April, Bonnie built the nest, starting with a platform of moss and leaves and finishing by wiggling her body to form a nest cup where she placed tiny soft feathers. This month, she's laid an egg each day until she has a clutch of ten. Each weighs in at a whopping one gram. By the time she's finished, she's laid more than her own body weight in eggs. Now she has her bare plucked chest, called a brood patch, resting against the eggs to incubate them, and any day now they'll hatch. If the weather's good, both parents will find the caterpillars needed to appease the appetites of their hungry chicks. It's thought that blue tits need to find a hundred caterpillars a day to feed each chick, and as the youngsters can take three weeks to fledge, that's more than 15,000 caterpillars. No wonder scientists are worried about the effect climate change will have on our native birds' long-term survival. With spring starting earlier, temperatures rising and rain increasing, will or can our birds adapt? For now, I'm keeping an eye on this intrepid pair and hoping they don't come to a sticky end like their namesakes. Extra fact file. If you see bees buzzing in and out of your nest boxes, don't panic. It's a privilege. They're likely to be tree bumblebees and they often nest in bird nest boxes. Treat them with the same respect you would nesting birds. Relish having them in your garden, pollinating your plants. Their life cycle is quick and they'll be gone within a couple of months. Garden Jobs from May by Pete Harkham May should be a lot warmer but as said last month, keeping an eye on the weather forecast and protect early outdoor sowings and plantings with fleece. Gradually harden off tender plants for outside and hanging baskets before planting out after the last frost, which should be by mid-May, possibly. Bedding plants may need to wait to be planted out towards the end of May. 
Now is a good time to re-evaluate the positioning of plants. Try to reduce any failures or poor growth due to their sighting in the garden. If you have a shady area in your garden, it's a good idea to check your individual plant's requirements. Research any that are unfamiliar. Always ensure they get planted in the correct place in the garden. Check out if the plant's natural habitat is, for example, a woodland. Then you can be sure it will grow best in dappled shade and not in full sun. Lists of plants and shrubs that prefer to be in dappled shade or even full shade are easily found online. Do some research to find ones that will suit your particular shady spot. Do note that the leaves of skimmia shrubs turn yellow in full sun. You may need to give the plant a tonic of sequestered iron after you've moved it from the sunny position. Acer palmatum trees also enjoy partial shade. These can be spectacular in autumn. You can buy a wildflower shade mix of seeds for a wild and shady part of your garden. Other jobs. Birds will be starting to nest now. Please check hedges before trimming them back. Prune springing flowering shrubs such as Deutzia, Choisia, Wygela and Philadelphus. These can all be pruned after flowering to maintain shape. Keep tying in clematis, sweet peas and honeysuckle as they grow up their trellis or other supports. Apply liquid feed to daffodils and the spring bulbs to ensure good flowers for next year. Out of Doors Beautiful Spring Turbans by Charlotte Toombs of Northcombe Flowers The tulip was a wildflower originally growing in Central Asia. It was first cultivated by the Turks as early as 1000 AD. Mania in Turkey struck in the 16th century at the time of the Ottoman Empire when a particular sultan demanded certain flowers for his pleasure. The name tulip comes from the Turkish word for turban, which makes a lot of sense when you consider the shape of both. Tulips remained popular in Turkey thereafter, and in the early 18th century, the tulip era really began. There were tulip festivals, and it became a crime, punishable by exile, to buy or sell the tulips outside the capital. The flowers arrived in northern Europe in the 16th century. Their introduction was thought to be by a botanist from Vienna, Clausius, who became the director of the oldest botanical garden in Leiden. He was friendly with the ambassador of Constantinople, who sent him samples of this wonder flower. This is believed to be the start of the bulb fields in the Netherlands today. At this time, the tulip was being used for medicinal purposes, but by the beginning of the 17th century, they were gaining popularity in gardens, and the bulbs were beginning to be sold for unbelievable amounts of money. Hybridized flowers were being bred to be very decorative, and in the autumn of 1636, some bulbs were reaching larger amounts of money than a house in Amsterdam. Things came to a crash in 1637, when people came to their senses and stopped buying the bulbs for such high prices. Throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, interest remained high in these bulbs, and the Dutch became the true connoisseurs of this incredible flower. It was discovered in the 20th century that the frilly petals and flames on the flowers were actually caused by a virus. This has now been bred out of them, and the fancy tulips are now genetically stable, although some are deliberately bred to retain this look. This year I've planted nearly 2,000 bulbs with 25 different varieties. I plant them very closely together so I can get a longer stem, because they fight for light and go upwards, which is more saleable. I treat the bulb as an annual, 
and all the spent bulbs are composted. There are some varieties that will come back year after year, but the flowers are smaller and less well-defined. British-grown tulips are amazing and far superior to the supermarket ones, which are generally mass-grown imports. Some tulips are even scented, but this has been bred out of the imports. By the law of averages, not all foals are going to be problem-free. By Lucy Proctor of the Glanville Stud. One such troublesome filly was foaled in early April. We were delighted with her during her first 24 hours, but by the second morning she'd collapsed and we couldn't get her up to drink from her dam. Our vet attended quickly and we stomach-tubed milk stripped from the mare into the foal to help alleviate dehydration and further deterioration in her condition. Despite various vet-administered drugs and even roping, a practice whereby one attempts to replicate the squeezing of the foal that would naturally occur during the foal's passage through the birth canal, thought to help alleviate the symptoms of a dummy foal, which can be caused by too swift a foaling, there was little improvement in the foal's condition, and it was decided that she needed intensive care that could only be provided by a specialist veterinary hospital. Doug had already left for Cheltenham, as we had last royal, regular readers will remember him as Honeysuckle's frustrating little brother, making his handicap hurdle debut in the afternoon, and as the chosen vet hospital was en route, I swiftly changed into clean racing clothes and set off in the lorry to deliver the poorly foal and her dam to hospital, before going on racing, only to watch last royal fall at the last, definitely one of those not-so-good days at the office. Having been diagnosed with sepsis on the brain, we were delighted the following morning to receive the news that with round-the-clock veterinary treatment, the foal's condition was improving. Three days later, we collected the mare and foal from hospital, and the foal has been thriving ever since. So, a happy outcome in the end. Another tricky foal was one that simply refused to drink from one side of his dam. With the dam producing more and more milk that wasn't being drunk, we had manually to strip the milk out to help the mare feel more comfortable. However, her bags quickly became so tight it was difficult to milk her out by hand. So I made a makeshift milk pump by cutting off the nipple end of a syringe and reversing the plunger. By drawing the plunger down, the milk easily flowed into the syringe and could be emptied into a jug and the process repeated. We were stripping the dam out several times a day like this until eventually the foal decided that he would drink from both sides after all. Some foals are born with crooked legs and if left alone, many will self-correct over the first few months. However, to produce a top equine athlete, correct confirmation is vital to help reduce injuries during a racehorse's career, and thus poor confirmation will reduce a horse's sale value. One foal last month had been born what in the industry is called windswept, which means that their hind legs look a bit like a skier doing a hard, fast turn. With doing nothing more than putting supportive resin extensions on the side of the foal's hind feet, six weeks later the hind legs are now perfectly straight and strong. Late May is our next sales day, and recently the sales company, Tattersalls, visited the stud to film a promotional video featuring our two three-year-old stores that we've been busy prepping for the sale. Usually, we'd have sold both these geldings as foals, but they had a bug at the time of the foal sales and didn't go, so we stored them on. 
They've both grown into big, strapping horses, and we're very excited to be selling two of our best stock as stores this time, rather than foals. They'll hopefully be purchased by racehorse trainers to be backed and pre-trained over the summer, and should be ready to run in the autumn or early next spring. On the racing front, our daughter Alice has had another point-to-point win, this time in the Ladies' Open at the Catastock Races at the end of April, and Freddie, who's in the States riding in timber races, has so far won five sanctioned races and is second in the table for prize money won. He'll remain in America until their spring season finishes at the end of May and will hopefully return for their autumn season, but more about this next month. Our final racing news has to be all about Honeysuckle yet again, who remains unbeaten, having claimed her 16th win in a row since debut and her 12th Grade 1 victory when she won the Punchestown Champion Hurdle on the 29th of April. We were amused to hear from one local vet that her daughter's young pony club friend, whose elderly pony is called Honey, is regularly to be heard happily shrieking, Go, Honeysuckle, go! as her pony takes off around the arena at pony club rallies. Happy days. Equestrian. I wasn't thinking about managing. I was terrified I'd never ride again. By para-dressage rider Jemima Green. My passion for riding started when I was just two years old. I had a very fluffy 12.2 Welsh pony who took me through pony club and many open fields and embedded my love of horses. I knew this was how I wanted to live my life and so chose a career working in eventing and producing my own horses. I worked my way up to my dream job as head girl and second rider for a top four-star eventer, Jodie Amos. This all changed in 2015 when I was involved in a very serious car accident, which left me paralysed from the waist down. My parents, brother and family were, of course, devastated. I too felt the same, but I wasn't thinking how I was going to manage my new life. I was terrified I would never ride again. I started with the fantastic Riding for the Disabled, RDA charity, which supported and encouraged me with hours and hours of walking around next to me while I just tried to stay upright in the saddle. I had no idea it was going to be this hard. The fabulous RDA horse, Pandora, was so patient and looked after me even through our first wobbly trot strides. I had little confidence that I was ever going to be able to ride properly again, but each time we got me on, there was always a step further and the confidence built. After months of hard work, I managed to finally progress to a different pony, Bubbles, and we managed to start my para-dressage competition experience. She was the perfect stepping stone to get back to what I felt was normality and to prepare me for the years ahead. In the nearly seven years since I became a paraplegic, I have managed to compete against the best. I have won international competitions and I am now supported by the World Class Programme. I am looking ahead to the European Championships in 2023, which I am focusing my training on, and I cannot wait for the season ahead. Vote for Those You Trust by North Dorset Labour's Pat Osborne You may have missed events at a Dorset Council meeting last month. First, the Tories voted against a motion calling for national legislation to be strengthened to allow councils to reject fossil fuel applications. Second, a vote in favour of a motion calling for the opening up of more oil and coal fields in the UK. 
it seems clear that Dorset Tories were never serious about taking action to avert a climate catastrophe, and their support of a climate emergency declaration in recent years feels nothing more than greenwash. In short, this is a significant backward step for Dorset Council that shows the Tories can't be trusted on climate. Sadly, these events were overshadowed by two ladies with a tube of glue who stuck themselves to a table to interrupt proceedings as a protest against the motions. With the glance and scroll, many of us now consume the news, it was this desperate but ill-conceived way they expressed their message, rather than the message itself, that took the headlines both locally and nationally. The Tories will no doubt be feeling relieved that they were gifted the opportunity to brush off legitimate climate concerns by fanning the flames of controversy around what appeared to be little more than a storm in a teacup. Dorset Tories shouldn't simply be let off the hook for inflicting a deliberate act of climate crisis self-harm on all of us. Neither is it necessary to take extreme headline-grabbing action to hold them to account. If you're as serious about the climate emergency as I am, you'll write to your local Tory councillor and tell them what you think about those votes. Then you'll vote in the next election in favour of a candidate whom you feel you actually can trust on climate. We're focusing on The Wrong People by North Dorset Lib Dems' Mike Chapman. I had only just got over the let-them-eat-cake resonance of the Chancellor's spring statement when I heard of a proposal to ship asylum seekers to Rwanda on a one-way ticket. I am probably being a bit unfair, but I was immediately reminded of Jonathan Swift's modest proposal. Its title carries on for preventing the children of poor people from being a burthen to their parents or country and for making them beneficial to the public. The proposal, of course, is that the rich should eat the poor starvelings, preferably in a casserole. So how is it that people with multinational background of the Prime Minister, Chancellor and Home Secretary have stewed up such a proposal allowing them to sit in judgement over the future lives of fugitives from war, repression and poverty? It beggars belief that the way to break the criminal gangs is to victimise their prey even further. The system seems to have lost its ability to be fair and reasonable and is lashing out with this make-or-break immoral, unjust and damaging idea. Much of the problem is born of the notion, now institutionalised, that we must make asylum application very slow and very hard because otherwise they, whoever they are, will all want to try to jump the immigration queue. On the other hand, coming down hard in an intentionally cooperative way on the smugglers seems wholly right and proper. With the right investment in cooperative surveillance and intelligence, it cannot be beyond the wit of man to find them and raise the stakes of their game considerably whilst delivering fair and reasonable asylum solutions. Whatever the outcome of our local elections, there is a strong case for those representatives forming the new unitary Somerset Council to leave their party badges at home. It will take a massive effort to make the new council work. It all starts off on party lines, us versus them. The losers are likely to be the people expecting the services and the positive changes they have been promised. These are hard yards building a new perspective, culture, system and process. Let's approach it with goodwill all around. You have been listening to the BV Magazine podcast with Jenny Devitt and Terry Bennett. This was May 2022, Episode 2. Join us again next week for Episode 3.